In the fall of 2017, an adult learning center in East Central Alberta received a grant to undertake climate literacy activities in the agricultural sector. At the time, the idea was to organize a few workshops and a handful of presentations at conferences to speak to the fact that despite popular belief, agriculture could be a force for good in the fight against climate change. Two years later, that little East Central Alberta initiative has grown tremendously and it even has its own podcast. You're listening to it right now. I'm Derek Leahy, and this is Rural Roots to Climate Solutions origin story. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions had a changing of the guard at the end of November 2019. Now, I'm not just talking about the podcast here, although I'll admit our downloads really went up the last few months, and is likely thanks to episodes 24 and episodes 25, uh, so adaptive multi-paddock grazing, and my conversation with Killam agriculture producer Don Rizika. Both I highly recommend if you haven't listened to them yet, especially if you're interested in finding out about how good grazing management can help with soil carbon sequestration and can help out the ecology of the prairies. So, no, I'm talking about the overall Rural Roots to Climate Solutions project. Now, some of you may know this, maybe you don't, Rural Roots isn't just a podcast. The podcast really is our gem in all the work we do, but our bread and butter activities are organizing farm field days, organizing workshops about the farm solutions that are also climate solutions in Alberta. For example, in January, we'll have a workshop in Millet about supporting ecosystems, goods and services on agricultural land. And in February, we'll have a passive solar greenhouse growing workshop in Athabasca and also in February, it looks like we'll be holding an on-farm renewable energy workshop in Bonneville. So no, we're not just another pretty podcast. We do workshops, farm field days, webinars, we've got the farmer's blog, we've got the solar lab. But like I said in the intro, when Rural Roots first started in 2017, it was really only supposed to be a few workshops and sending some presenters to the Organic Alberta Conference in Red Deer in 2018. That was probably going to be it. Anyway, the person who started all this amazingness is leaving us. Well, sort of. Brenda Barrett, who has moved on from her position as the program manager at the Stetler Learning Center in East Central Alberta, is the one who started Rural Roots to Climate Solutions. It wasn't me. No, Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is a project of the Stetler Learning Center. So not only did we lose our boss, we also lost our founder. Well, sort of. I promise I'm going to explain this in a second. With this change, I thought it would be a good time to take a look under the hood of Rural Roots to Climate Solutions. There were questions about Rural Roots that even I had that I was eager to have answered, like, how did Rural Roots get started? Why do we do things the way we do? Plus, I've just been, I've been dying to find a reason to get Brenda on the podcast, She's such an awesome person who does so much for the land, for food, for community in rural Alberta. And I think to understand rural roots, you have to understand who Brenda is. It also gave me the opportunity to ask Brenda a really awkward question. Uh, my surprise question. Yeah. So take as much time as you need for this one. We got an hour and a half. What was the best thing about being my boss? Oh. <laughs> I, I couldn't really resist. 
I actually thought Brenda was going to tease me or joke around a little bit when I asked her that, but then she gave me a real genuine answer. The conversations we get to have. A lot of times I would think, mm, am I supposed to be? Am I, are we off track? It just, <laughs> no, it was it, the really big picture, but also pragmatic conversations, right? And so really getting to think, how can we shift things in Alberta? And I think you always ask some pretty profound questions that were fun to chew over and discuss and also you were proactive and had got to do it all so it was kind of like I got to just philosophize and then walk away and talk to you next week she's got a great way with words and honesty all right let's get to know Brenda better so we can get to know rural roots better by the way, we recorded this one at the Stetler Learning Center, so you can hear some of the staff talking out in the hallway, and the door chime kept going off every once in a while because people are walking through the front door. Some of that got into the audio, so I am really sorry about that. And I probably should explain how this fits into the whole farm solutions or climate solutions thing we have with this podcast. Rural Roots isn't a land management practice, and it's not really a piece of farm technology either. Now, I stole this idea from a friend of a friend up in peace country. Now, with everything that agriculture faces right now, from a dwindling farm population to the price of land to climate change, agriculture needs more farm organizers. Farm organizers like Brenda, who take the initiative and start something like Rural Roots of Climate Solutions that's doing what it can to empower agricultural producers with climate solutions. How'd you get into farming? How did you get back into farming? Yeah. Um, so I did grow up at a farm um, out by Brownfield Coronation area um, and lived there and was part of 4-H until I went away for high school, actually. Um, so being the youngest of eight and growing up on a mixed farm, so it was beef and... Uh, grains. I'm also the least likely anyone thought would get into farming. So it's not that I had a large passion for farming, agriculture, even growing up rural. Um, but so yeah, I, I left actually the area when I was in high school and then went away university and was actually overseas. I think what really reconnected me back was even though I wasn't interested in being a farmer or farming in general, I had a lot of questions related to, um, at the time, being a naive 18, 19-year-old war and peace and international development. And so what was causing these great divides socioeconomic? But then as I got in and actually did my undergrad in development studies, looking at how much how it all intertwines also with how we treat the land mm -hmm. and so i'm sure growing up rural gave me a natural environmental ethic or connection to the land and perspective that way but then seeing how there was seemed to be this pattern all over the world of abuse of the land but also displacement of the people who had been caretakers of the land mm -hmm. and therefore war famine refugees and this you know, great system. Um, and so I think those kind of questions led me more into the environmental side of things. And so most of my career through my 20s and 30s was looking at environment from an impact of more corporate sustainability, uh, manufacturing, finance. Um, 
And when I finally decided that it was time to get out of the corporate sector because I'd learned everything I wanted to learn really there and it wasn't meant to be a lifetime, I came, I ended up doing my master's at a very alternative college affiliated with the University of Plymouth, so in England. And that was a real deep reconnection back into food, but also how food's grown and ended up coming back to Alberta to write my master's thesis on ecological resilience and rural community, which led a lot also to farming practice hmm. and even how, so how are we the land? Um, so I guess that's all the philosophy somehow in there. It was probably more my environmental ethic, but also having lived in cities and, and been transient and not been necessarily right on the land as I questioned my own practices and what was under my control when I lived overseas, being a renter, not a landowner, food, right? So um, my husband says I say food with three O's is how important it is to me. So it's food, <laughs> it's not food. So it's food, right? So as much as that's how I experienced cultures, it also was an easy place or the place I could control daily where my food was coming from and the land ethic behind it. So I did, I guess, connect a lot with farmers in the various countries I lived in and really looked at my food source. Um, so then coming back to rural Alberta, getting connected with farmers here the first week back, um, having the opportunity to meet Don Ruzika. Um, and actually he was a key part of my thesis. Um, now how did we get into farming? So there was all that, I guess, that led to this appreciation of farming and questioning the farming systems but I was still probably more looking at it as a an eater mm -hmm. point of view and, and how could I then step into the system more from that advocacy systems piece and then I met Vance who's my husband and he was moving back to Alberta about the same time and has land um, near here so he um, it's his family farm that we're on now and so he also wasn't really planning to become a farmer so it's kind of the farming emerged between the two of us I guess having land access because of his family land um, I don't know if we would be farming without having already had that access to the land um, but both of us having that strong land ethic and I guess me especially being very focused on what I eat and where it comes from becoming food producers was I guess a natural next step and then with the amount of land we had we have the availability to provide that to others mm. and so that's kind of how we've the farm has emerged uh, from the it's it's bigger than the two of us yeah. and neither of us ever wanted to be doing it alone so that's how farming has happened to us I guess I like the way you put it, it happened to you. Why does Earthworks farm the way it farms? You could have easily just ripped up everything and put it into canola, except for your conservation easement. But, yeah. You know, you, you've chosen a certain path. Right. So why do we farm the way we farm? I mean, our name of our farm is Earthworks, and it's two words, not one, because we're not needing to get in there and change it. The Earthworks the systems uh -huh. we have have co-evolved. I never realized that. Okay. And yeah. so we, that's our ethic, I guess, is that we're learning from nature and working as a part of nature um, to the best we can in all our human failures. Um, 
so that's our name, I guess. And as I talked about, both of us had a pretty strong land environmental ethic mm. um, to then. And I guess, yeah, we look at it more as stewards. We're, we're not necessarily making the most economically sound choices in how we farm or not farm, um, nor are we really profiting from it at this point in time. Um, but we do look at it almost as a way of uh, stewarding hopefully for a next generation um, that will make it that far as humanity. Um, and so that's been our choices. Vance's mom was one of the first holistic management practitioners in Alberta. Mm. Um, and so the, some of the land that we have under our management now had been holistically grazed for over 20 years now. Um, and so it was a picking up of what was already there and inheriting and moving forward with it um, and changing some of the practices because the science has informed us and, and the thinking has evolved and, and we know different now, even compared to then. Um, and I guess it's that food piece too, right? So a lot of... Um, Slav Heller, who passed away this summer, was one of my early teachers when I moved back to Alberta. And he talked a lot about, he had this model that really struck me th with me, and it was a great name too, so no one else, it's not copyrighted yet, so I, no one take this. <laughs> but he talked about the food, and the, the being T-H-E, tasty, healthy, and ethical. Okay. And so... What I love about the way we're farming is that the science from a nutrition and health point of view, as well as soil science and, and animal health and hu humane treatment, all point to the same kind of practices. And so the way we farm means that we're not only treating the land well and sequestering carbon, we're also producing food that's healthy for ourselves and for our communities. And, I mean, taste is subjective, mm -hmm. and so I can't tell you what it tastes better than this, but it's also true and it's natural. And I guess it's that, that it's, it fits my taste buds and it fits the diet that, that we feel really nourishes us. Um, and so that tells me that there's something, even when the economics point away from it, all those other truths are there. And so that's why we farm the way we do, is to find that sweet spot. I guess that's where the, the triple O food comes in again, is that taste piece, right? That it's also guilt-free food, that we're not um, having to make a trade-off. Is it human health versus environmental health? Or is it really great-tasting food at the expense of the land and our future generations? And so that's to uh, probably everything we do somehow looks at, we look at those lenses. Okay. Could you talk a little bit about the practices you guys use? Like I'm mm -hmm. somewhat familiar yeah. with them. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, so we um, do practice rotational grazing um, of some form or the other. We're probably, that's one of the areas we're probably most critical on how our practice could be. Um, still having having quite a small herd and actually a lot of land under the ability to manage. Um, we haven't got the sweet spot there. No, we could be doing better. But really, we are looking at a rotational grazing or AMP to, to speak to the, the last podcast. Um, and basically, I guess underlying whether it's the beef as well as we raise pork and poultry at times is being perennial based. Mm. Um, and so we do have a large part of our um, land is still native prairie. 
And so how do we work with animals to maintain and help that ecosystem thrive versus it losing more native prairie? A lot is, I guess, domesticated prairie or has been turned back into pasture. Um, so, But everything is perennial, um, other than when we have, I guess, gone through a cycle where we're rejuvenating older pastures, domesticated pastures that have perhaps been overhayed, overgrazed, and we need to kind of rejuvenate them, but basically then putting them back into hay and forage to then hopefully not have to bring a till through them again for another decade or two. Um, so our beef is grass-fed and finished, and we use a Scottish Highland Galloway crossbreed as well because they do very well on that type of a diet as well as they do really well in our winters mm-hmm. um, and even the summers um, from a pest and, and flies and stuff we've really noticed that heavier coat of uh, hair seems to actually also benefit when it's a hot and dry summer hmm. interesting okay can't ask them but what we can observe <laughs> is it seems to be they seems to be doing just as well um, as any other and they lose a lot of that hair in the summer anyhow but um and then we do uh, sometimes raise a, a bush pork versus the pastured pork. So we do have a lot. We're right on the cusp of the prairie parkland. So we do have a lot of old poplar strands and shrubby brushes um, that in a way have been neglected even from a succession point of view so that we're really dying back. And so we rotate our pigs through the shrubby brush um, and let them dig in and knock about the dead, remulch basically, um, and we see that then those bushes, some of the succession is starting to happen faster and even some of the fruit trees coming back in, ab- in abundance um, there. So we, ever, they're 100% outdoors even in the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we do chicken and turkey through the summer. So we don't do our own hatching. Um, so they are a seasonal product only. Um, but we've also built our system um, Vance is a bit of an inventor and likes to play. So he's built an outdoor brooder. So we don't, when we do get our hatchlings and poults, they start outdoors on grass the end of May, beginning June. Doesn't mean they're without heat. Mm -hmm. So we do have both, um, he's designed. So it is a a heated system. It looks like a greenhouse, but instead of uh, plants out there with a bit of heat, getting started in May and June, it's chicks and poults getting started day one on grass and bugs. Cool. And so we have a pasture-based system, and that's how we raise our poultry through the summer. Okay. And how come you guys decided to do the brooder house outside? Um, Well, that's how where they'd be raised naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, sure, they'd be with a mother, right? So, I mean, we do have to replace heat okay. sources because there's no hens sitting there keeping them warm, True. as right. well as predator control, right? Mm-hmm. They're the only animals that don't naturally on our farm have their mothers there to protect them. Um, when we first started, we were doing the classic six to eight weeks indoors and then moving them outside. One that's sometimes just logistical, like a nightmare. You try to herd like a thousand baby chicks across the yard. Um, And somehow always bad weather when we were trying to do it. Um, And, but also we then noticed in that whole observation piece, it was taking them a little bit longer to pick up the idea that they were on grass and that whole natural scratching, going after Mm. bugs habit. Um, and especially because we're not using a heritage breed uh, poultry at this time because we haven't, some of the economics of it. 
um, compared to everything else we're doing. So our compromise in this system is we do use your regular hatchery Cornish chicks. So already they're being bred away from. So the sooner we can get them more into a natural system, it seemed that they're more naturally instinct kicks in and they're going after bugs the first year we really we did it we were shocked because we thought we'll take them out of the boxes and like they're, they're going to sit there for a while right because mm. it's kind of what they do in the barn and get equipped I walked back up to the house to start making lunch and looked out and there were baby chicks following me like 200 meters across the yard wow. and they weren't even going after the actual like feed that we had put out for them they were already scratching and pepping they were chickens okay. and so that just convinced us that there's something in that and um and yeah and I guess it's just part of our values and our system and it works and it's something unique and crazy that we've done and and we hear back from customers who have said that they've had other pastured poultry but they notice a difference with ours it could be feed sources but we're not that exclusive and where we're getting our feed right the feed when we do purchase usually comes from a tasking co-op it's an organic ration soy free but it's not like anybody else couldn't be going and getting it but we've heard some really good feedback and so we think it's probably the exercise and the outdoor nature of the whole system being that way okay no i think that makes sense yeah, yeah. uh just out of curiosity is there anything that you'd like to be doing on your farm right now that you're not doing I don't mean like literally in this moment, but you know, you've, you've done pork, you know, you've done a lot, a lot of different types of fowl, yeah. I guess, and the beef, but there's something, you know. There's like, lots of opportunity for multiple enterprises that uh, we don't want to be doing, mm-hmm. but would love to invite others in to do. Um, <laughs> like those mushrooms, I said. Like those mushrooms. I was going to see if you picked up on this. <laughs> like mushrooms. Um, I, I love being... We actually a lot of times call ourselves... Um, we're not very good farmers. We're definitely not ranchers. Um, but we're better grazers and, and foragers. Because I'm not even a very good gardener. I just like wandering <laughs> around and finding food and coming back to the kitchen. Oh, right? okay. So we're pretty decent grazers and foragers. But- um, or harvesters even and foragers, the way we look at our animals and the way we look at even the plant life on our farm. Um, but uh, an apiary, we'd love to see, mm. you know, we did actually, we, I kept bees for three years, um, just two hives. And it just became, it was supposed to be one of those a hobby, but trying to squeeze another hobby in amongst all the chores it just felt like another chore so we let that go um but with yeah we definitely love to see that as well as even fruit and nut tree like there's some some parts there and we are excited to be working um over the next year it looks like we'll be one of the alice ALUS projects for Locomb County and are partnering with Oz, the Alberta, or no, the Agroforestry Woodlot Extension Society. Perfect. Um, to have a project on our place and build that up. That's great. But that's really from a yeah shelter belt, complementary ecosystem goods and services, then really being able to step into agroforestry at this point. But it definitely is a dream of ours is to really, that fits well and that's our future the system we're trying to build or have been dreaming of really mm. is that agroforestry, silvo pasture, sil- you know, the animals amongst the trees type, okay. even the cattle, not just the pigs. A question that I'm 
personally curious about and yeah, curious to hear what the answer is. How did Rural Roots to Climate Solutions get started? Um, some people might call me an opportunistic person or an ins- and an instigator. Um, so really, I mean, it, it was, I guess, started by the fact that we, the climate literacy grants were put out by the Alberta government and that offering was put out there and they were looking for different types of proposals. However, in the, you know, the couple of years before that with Stetler Learning, when we've looked at other areas that are of need or topics that were emerging in our area, um, not necessarily climate change literacy being a hot topic, but at the time it was the downturn the severe part of the downturn. And so we were looking at, and we actually were having um, different individuals who had been working in oil and gas coming in and from the post-secondary side of Stetler Learning, looking at retraining and and, uh, acknowledging that probably they were more renewable energy type jobs, but there is a transition happening uh, globally, nationally, and even provincially related to uh, jobs and energy and that relates to rural. And so that had already been a bit of a conversation amongst some of our board members around in the future, we had been giving that kind of feedback back to our post-secondary partners, even going, well, is there some kind of a green trade certificate being developed that we could look at somehow bringing out to the rural? And, you know, so we were seeing those trends and very aware of that. Um, Clearly, from what I've said so far, my personal values um, and principles really tie to um, the the topics that we do cover with Rural Roots to Climate Solutions. Um, but I also knew I wasn't alone, that there was a few board members. Um, and we had also talked about, well, being an agricultural community, what services or what kind of projects were we providing to an agricultural, the agricultural part of the Stetler community that would be unique and not duplicating or competing mm. with the forage groups, with the research groups out there, with the egg services. So other times when we've done that kind of research, but somebody's already filling in that gap mm. and our mandates to fill in the gaps. So when this, the opportunity of this grant and, and, and the fact that it posed that question, not about hard technical solutions related to climate change, but actually building the literacy, building the language and creating common understanding, um, we kind of thought, well, what do we have to lose Mm. for applying? And fortunately, they were also being the type of grant it was. They were open to innovation. They were also open to vagueness in that we were able to say, well, here's what we would kind of like to do. We're not sure how it'll take shape because it's not that we were already doing this project. Um, so we yeah, out when we got the funding then it was kind of okay what, what did we say we were gonna do because it had probably been almost eight months um or at least six months between the sending and the application oh, really? and finding okay. out we had the funding so then you have to even remember what you had said you wanted to do to begin with <laughs> um and then it was that pulling together the team and the partners and letting emerge what was going to emerge but i think we knew what we wanted to do wasn't Training people mm. in terms of just looking at here's knowledge and here's information, but also the connectivity and the community building piece. And so people meeting face to face. And I guess I did have that belief that 
despite stereotypes, I wasn't the only one out in rural Alberta thinking this, and I knew I was having some really amazing conversations, and I know there's this very dispersed community of producers also trying um, to be part of a solution. Um, and so I guess for me, it was taking the opportunity of the funding offered to find a way of how could we strengthen that community and really serve the people who are already there, mm. who were looking for ideas as well as community in order to keep the bit of momentum that was there going. Okay. Like, I remember at the beginning how we sort of, like, we were calling it, like, Climate University or Climate U or something yeah. like that. I guess I was curious, like, were we supposed to talk about climate change more in our works? Technically, how long have we been doing this for? Two years now? Maybe? Yeah. We, I have never explained climate change to anybody in the work we do. Was was it more about, like, talking about climate change with farmers? Or in the back of your mind, um, was it always No, it was solutions-focused solutions okay. in that it was a, a, that pragmatic approach of we're not... I think when we did decide to put in the application, it wasn't, we're not going to try to convince people who aren't interested. If some, but, but we will be invitational. If you're curious mm. and you want to go there, we can go there, right? And have those different discussions and dialogues. And we maybe haven't, but there's been times we've brought up more about, well, what is happening around us and what mm. does climate change look like? Like, even if you think of, David and the water cycle True. piece, right? Yeah. And so I think we didn't want to wait into like, let's do a debate of is it happening, is it not? Is climate change man-made or is it just a natural cycle and it'll rewrite itself in another hundred years? Um, it was, we're going to accept it as a fact. The climate is changing and mm. it's going to impact. And how does that look for people in rural at the time, we weren't only focused on, you know, various ideas were like, well, maybe we could do this. Wasn't necessarily only um, farming and agricultural. I think we landed there because also it was a population not being served. Mm. There are other initiatives, even that were funded through that same project, right, that kind of sure. went into that technical training and retraining and reskilling of even rural populations. Um, but, yeah, no, the focus, I think, was always, I'd have to go back the grant application, <laughs> but that pragmatic approach to ship people along though, right? So that it was even if uh, philosophically we might agree, but I'm still not sure what that looks like and how do I translate that into my practice on my land or in my job or in my day-to-day -day choices okay. from a rural point of view. Yeah. Well, it's really good to know that. Yeah. I wasn't too sure. Cause like that's completely informed yeah. the way we yeah. work. The way so we, we did, you know, yeah. we, we envisioned whether it was workshops or field days as a way of either gathering the community mm. um, together with the experts and the people at the forefront of the knowledge and acknowledging that like, when I came home and did my master's thesis, I lived with my parents, um, like all good 30-somethings do nowadays. <laughs> um, and getting to sit, you know, I'd go and read these fantastic reports and spend all morning in the books. And I'd come up for lunch at noon and talk to my dad, who would have been in his 70s at that time. Um, and I'd be like, so dad, here's what I'm reading, right? And hearing him talk about being the generation that saw basically chemical farming come in mm. and even hearing the choices he made and realizing he, a lot of farmers, especially I would say of his generation 
were scientists in that they were observing, they were, you know, even dad was quite skeptical, but yes, he was seeing results bringing in some of the petrochemical fertilizers and there, but he wasn't going to jump on it going, well, if if I got applied this and I got 50% results, if I apply 50% more, I'm going to get, right? Like Mm -hmm. he played a lot about what was the minimum amount he could use to get better yield and better there. And so seeing that, I was like, well, yeah, like that's science. And so there's so much wisdom already in the farming community that there was also acknowledging that, that this isn't about bringing experts from the university halls to inform one way, Mm -hmm. but to also help them learn from the people who are right on the ground about how their research is or is not um, applicable Mm -hmm. and strengthen both communities. Uh, and I, very, I really like that at our field days and workshops, mm-hmm. just to see that exchange between, like, you know, an academic from the University of Alberta and just talking yeah. to, I guess, regular Joe or Jane Farmer yeah. and just the exchange of information there. And I, I like to think they really enjoy it, too, because yeah. it, they, they have, like, two pieces of the puzzle right there. And it's, yeah, it's a really great yeah. thing to watch. Yeah. yeah. Well, other yeah. thing I want to ask, do you remember how we came up with the idea for the podcast? I don't even, I can't even, I remember doing the grant application and all that, but I don't even know if it was your idea or my idea or we just came up with it together. I remember we were talking about the challenge of, well, we didn't want to lose the face-to-face, the challenge that dates and timing don't always work for all the people we wanted to be there right and and so how do we, I guess it came up because the, you know, the very first launch you could say of the project was when we partnered with organic alberta right yeah. um and brought there if you could say it was climate university because we used some of our funding to really bring those experts into what could have been a university type setting or that classic conference True. type setting right um and it was kim i think who kind of or somebody from the advisory committee was saying well are we going to at least videotape this we don't know what we're going to do yeah, with it yet him, yeah. right? right so we found out it wasn't going to cost i think what i thought it would have cost um to do that and we did we live stream some of it well basically we had all this content and then we were headed out into the field days yeah. and it was that kind of a piece of and also because it was i think even mark I can remember him prodding this piece of, at the time, we had funding for one year. Mm-hmm. We had no idea what we were going to become or how long. And I think we were thinking, okay, if we can do this in one year, we've at least thrown some pebbles and created some ripples out there. And we've made our contribution. And we con- converted some of the that climate literacy money, which primarily, uh, in my perception went into more education programs from a K to grade 12 point of view, Mm. greatly, Mm -hmm. not saying not needed, but we're unique in that we took some of that funding and diverted it to a a unique population that doesn't often access those funds and benefits of them. So we were talking about archiving even, just how do we capture what this project is and make it available beyond the one-year term. And so that was where we video and talked about and then I think podcasting, because I listen to a lot of podcasts, I know that probably came up. And mm. and fortunately, the Alberta Real Estate Foundation was there to come in as a partner. Yeah, well, this worked out well. I remember just thinking how easy it was going to be. It was like, ah, you know, I'm done journalism. What's the difference? Like, oh, there's a, there's a huge difference. <laughs> and our, our main message from 
not day one, but almost from day one, has always been farm solutions are climate solutions. Uh, what's good for the farm can also be good for the climate. Mm -hmm. Is that message actually true? Um, I think when you say can be. Ah, okay. Right? Um, sometimes I've worried, have we simplified it too, simplified it too much mm -hmm. when it's about farm solutions are climate solutions? or mm -hmm. I think climate solutions are farm solutions. Just depends okay. on which kind of a farm you are. What? So why the other way around? I guess because of the paradigm I'm in. Mm -hmm. There's nothing out there that are climate solutions that doesn't benefit the kind of farming that I want to see. I want to practice and also I want to see more of. And as we see them as climate solutions, it hopefully opens up and connects us to the consumer base that will support that kind of farming. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean every action I can I do on the farm will inherently be a climate solution, mm -hmm. right? So I guess that's been something that sometimes I've been listening to the podcast and went, oh, I'm surprised no one's called us on that one yet, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I do, like you said, it's it can be. Huh. Farm solutions can be climate solutions and in a way that they're solutions from that holistic point of view. And it doesn't have to be an or or a but, mm. but there's a lot out there that are an and. And it been overseeing this project for is it yeah, it's two years now yeah yeah full two years oh, yeah. time yeah. flies uh, I don't know some surprises about rural roots or highlights or stuff that really sticks out in your mind something that I think I guess I was always cognizant of it is a bit of a odd animal to be birthed out of Stetler Learning Center or the learning adult learning field was I'd always kept asking the question back to the advisory committee and to you in terms of, because you were at the forefront of more the stakeholders, is like, are we the right group to be hosting it? Mm. Um, versus was it just me being incredibly opportunistic about a personal passion or was this the right space? And hearing back people talk about the fact that we weren't all actually being a bit removed from the community we're trying to serve allowed us to even create a unique space for some of our stakeholders who making climate change one of their conscious pillars, prime pillars, directions might have actually alienated some of the crowd that they're able to bring to the table. Mm -hmm. And yet they knew that they needed to have the conversation. They need with their, their so us being there holding these conversations um, and the kind of unique space that we, we created, um, I guess was comforting. But then I realized it wasn't just my own like devious plans and ego leading this. <laughs> um, and also really expanded, I would say my mindset for learning the learning center in Stetler beyond this project to look at how these centers around the province, when they're well-resourced and meeting their core mandate can also be, or truly are a community development organization and, and create spaces in their communities for people to gather under topics that they're not, or they don't have those safe spaces. So I think that, feedback mm. was actually quite surprising in terms of every time I kept saying, well, isn't there somebody better? Are you sure? You know, sure. Like it doesn't have to be Stetler learning, like as much as Stetler learning benefited from it. And I enjoyed being there and we were engaged, 
also always being willing to be unattached to who's the right host for the project kept hearing back no no like you guys keep it like kind of the nervousness if if we would if Stetler Learning Center would have said okay you guys gotta go right all right um so that was something I think that was really surprising to me positively as well as really expanded in general my my vision for adult learning in Alberta um in general um and even sometimes the people that would come out, like, and, and, you know, we have some of our regulars are the kind of people I expected to be there. And I kind of maybe crafted the project or wrote the grant application thinking of those individuals. Okay. And so I assumed in a way, it's that whole idea of sometimes we think we're preaching to the choir, right? And we say that in a negative way. And we're always worried about who's not in the room. But hearing from people that I assumed were already well-connected and had a community of like-minded people that they felt were on this journey with them, Mm -hmm. often they were the ones also saying, like, this project, like, I I don't feel so alone. I don't feel so alone. Mm -hmm. They're the people I would have thought didn't feel alone. Right. And so sometimes realizing like we talk negatively a lot in projects about are we preaching to the choir? Sometimes the choir needs a community Mm. and there's a reason why. Right. And that you also need that core choir to keep gathering to allow new members somewhere to land. And so that was something that always struck me when some people would say like how they felt so alone until they this project kind of helped them connect with others or to see that they weren't alone, even if they weren't able to come to all the events, that they weren't the only people talking about this. I guess surprised me because a lot of times it was the people that I would have thought were more connected and less isolated that were the ones saying that, which just really makes me think about the people who might still be further isolated. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you brought up creating the space and I, I think, that's one thing like we really do like I'm constantly telling people like no no we, we don't bring the expertise uh, we create the space for that expertise to be exchanged mm-hmm. and to be heard and I think a lot of that's through the human library concept we've been using and like a lot of that credit goes to you for like really saying this is the way we gotta go I'm just thinking or I'm just hoping could you sort of explain what the human library is uh, for folks who aren't familiar with it well I'll give credit for the term also for those who are familiar with the the term human libraries, even used a lot now, actual physical libraries, where rather than the idea of you go into a library and you take a book off the shelf and you read it in order to get knowledge and wisdom, um, libraries had started hosting what they would call a human library. It might be a Saturday afternoon and there's a set of five different tables and it's an opportunity to check out another person and have a conversation um and they were a lot of them have consciously picked say perhaps marginalized individuals or stories that are unheard in their community so whether that's refugees um people from the lgbtq2s community this you know um but also i know some of the libraries around here did it and actually brought in farmers, right? Mm-hmm. So meet the person who grows your food. But I guess it's it's that principle behind what the libraries are doing that's behind also our format that is that everybody holds wisdom mm-hmm. and we're going to knowledge and build collective wisdom by acknowledging 
whoever shows up adds value and there's not a one-way exchange of information and a one-way exchange of experience. Um, and I guess that for me and my practice goes back to having been part of the art of hosting community for mm. since my early twenties, right. Which really is about how do we create the processes that allow people to show up as whole selves also not just the expertise or their hat they think they're coming into the room with but all their experience all their curiosity and create the conversations that matter a lot of times when you have a conference and I guess the the model that I would lay against you have the human library model the sages on stages where Mm. we all sit passively and drink loads of coffee while we listen to four (laughs) typically white men sit on stage and talk at us for a day really when you come away from a day like that usually the best information you got or the actions you need to follow up happened over the coffee break and the lunch right and a lot of times you've probably been to these events where it's really hard to get people back into the room to see the people they paid to come see because they're having such great conversations in the hallway. So really the art of hosting is also born from the, how do we just flip that model and create the conversations, everybody create space for the conversations everybody really wants to have and have those connections and create the spaces and convene the spaces that create those connections, acknowledge the wisdom and the experience and the curiosity. So even if you might not have what you consider wisdom and experience, the questions you're asked are actually going to move us into the future and create that kind of a container. And yes, we might have a keynote or yes, we'll bring in individuals who and, and look in and weave the content in, mm. but not give all the air to a few individuals from the front. It's really interesting. We do a lot of conferences the, the way, like you said, because yeah, you're right. I, have to, I remember it was actually the end of the Organic Alberta Conference in 2018 that somebody was joking around. She's like, I think this is the ideal conference. You just tell people you're going to have like the, I don't know, legendary, I don't know, Leonardo DiCaprio is going to come to Alberta and talk about regen eggs. So everybody's going to show up, but he's the only speaker at the conference. He cancels at the last second and everybody still shows up to the conference to talk to each other. And the argument was they'd have actually a better time doing that than going to like standard conferences that a lot of us are familiar Mm -hmm. with and that a lot of us still go to and drink way too much coffee. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the year before the organic Alberta conference that we launched our project at, it was the partnership between organic Alberta and the holistic management. Right. And so they did that Saturday afternoon when the, so the two agendas overlapped, I think it was Saturday afternoon there, it was an open space, right? And so they trusted me enough to host that. And there was a lot of nervousness in that because literally there was no agenda Mm. for that entire afternoon and people had to create the agenda from the conversations they wanted to have. Okay. And it was a bit of an experiment. I think it went fairly well and that I believe they brought that format in and a bit more into the future conferences in different ways too, okay. right? So, yeah, there and it is that there's processes, right? Like it's not that we're yeah, just kind of promising people one thing and then taking it away from them yeah. when they show up. <laughs> but we're creating a container very consciously. Mm. That is about allowing people to connect, to be curious, to learn together, mm. and 
to be seen at a time, even though, yeah, that sometimes that's, these topics aren't always the easiest ones to make a stance around. Not at all, no. In Alberta. And I guess that's it. That's still where we're at, though, right? Mm. We're not asking people to put their political thoughts on the table or go protest or rally or show up in a place that, not saying that you don't do all those things, Mm. but it's just another way of supporting the direction that I think we all believe we're headed anyhow. What do you think we're trying to do with Rural Roots? Mm. I know we've already identified, you know, the human library, creating space, learning, but I was hoping you could dig a little bit deeper for me. I think we're building community and we're building momentum um, and supporting a transition that's going to happen, Mm. whether we like it or not. And so we're trying to find ways of being a positive part of that transition. I'm going to get theoretical, which is hard to do on a podcast because I want a visual. (laughs) But there's a two loops model. Um, which I'm sure I've drawn for you multiple times over the last two years, right? (laughs) Uh, But it's a lovely model in that it it shows this, that like kind of curve going up and down, right? Which is that a system growing and being at its peak, but also declining. And at the same time, while the, that system is at its peak, there's a new system emerging, right? So, but that needs experimentation, that needs play, that needs failure. Um, and uh, what I love about that model is it's allowed me over the course of the last 20 years to pinpoint at different points in time, even what, where am I in this? Um, I don't think, I'm gonna say this, is I don't think Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is hospice work. Mm. And that's important work to be done, which is about letting the old system die and helping it die gracefully. Okay. That's, there's other work that's happening there. I guess that's where maybe, you know, some of that other that I've talked about, I believe we're at that bottom end of the emerging loop that really is about that connecting people who are already playing, Mm. who are already experimenting, um, who are already experiencing failure and redirection and figuring this part out. Um, and we're creating a place for those people to connect to each other. So whether it is the farmer who has been managing their land differently to all the giggles and chuckles of their neighbors for the last 20 years or the, the new landowner who wants to break away from family patterns and treat the land differently but is worried about what that's going to do right Mm -hmm. like those are those experimenters those are the innovators to also the researchers and the scientists in the formal you know universities or the economists who are asking questions like what food system do we want to be eating from Mm. not only how are we going to feed X number, thousand, billion people. Um, How do we connect all of them together so that it starts to work towards a system to emerge that then is safer for others to jump to and move to without all of us having to go through that deep learning curve? 
Okay. Yeah, I think I've also heard you describe it as like, and I know we've talked about too, like, are we representing that, that cutting edge or I don't know what the opposite of cutting edge would be the whole knife, but yeah. I know sometimes it's concerned me that like maybe we're too much on that cutting edge that, you know, we appeal really well to quite a few regen producers, mm-hmm. but those ones that, you know, people refer to as traditional farmers or conventional agriculture producers, like... I argue don't tend to show up at our workshops too yeah. too often. I could totally be wrong about that too, and I've always wondered, well, is that problematic that mm. you know we're just on that cutting edge, or we're not representing the rest of the blade? Well, are you going to ask me a question about where we should go? <laughs> I, I will now, Brenda. Because if that's where we are, okay. is convening and connecting and creating the space for the experimenters, the the edge. Mm-hmm. I actually think that's where we do need to go or Mm. I challenge us to expand beyond perhaps our own biases but also build relationships um, and and, and step more even into the messy middle Mm. rather than the edge. Um, I guess believing and I, I guess it's that it's my belief that within even large agricultural industrial groups there's individuals in there who are probably also the edge Mm. of that industry group and how do we reach them and how do we invite them in and also so we can shift again systemically and faster right that it's yeah that is something that I guess I challenge our project to do is to not leave behind the edge and become more mainstream just to get more people showing up Mm. but how do we now that we've created perhaps a community of regenerative farmers wannabe regenerative farmers and even the experts who are supporting them with their science and research Mm. because i think we've made some amazing partnerships um across variety of specialties how do we then expand the safe space into the messy middle it's almost like we need a social innovation lab for something like that hey brenda yeah yeah great great. (laughs) i've never thought of that (laughs) uh and like just hearing you talk i'm like i'm thinking like how would i do that because like we it's funny because we do operate in the messy middle between like agriculture and the environmental movement if you want to call it mm-hmm. that but mm-hmm. it really you're right there's an other messy middle between like regenerative agriculture or at least people who identify with that type of agriculture yeah. and people who we'd say identify with traditional agriculture or conventional yeah. agriculture there's a whole other messy middle there that yeah. does need a lot of work and, yeah um, and yeah how you bridge that is stay tuned folks we'll figure that yeah. out <laughs> alright guys you're good why do you think it's important we continue our work? You know, there's Alice, there's Cows and Fish, there's Stocks Unlimited. A lot of them are doing the ecological services stuff. I, even looking at them, like a lot of them are starting to shift into highlighting carbon sequestration, which, you know, climate solution right there. Are we just reinventing the wheel with what we're doing? I guess that's perhaps why I'm wondering where to next mm. is as even we've created maybe a safe space to have these conversations. Hopefully as some of this becomes more mainstream, some of those organizations that are relying on us to host 
and invite them in as the experts now can start actually just having that conversation as part of their mainstream agenda. So then what's the next edge? Mm. Where do we go with this space? And I think that's that piece of also reaching out into industry players um, that maybe we haven't had the experience, the credibility, the confidence Mm. to go there yet. Um, And so I think that's maybe why I don't know if, and I don't think those groups are there yet. Like, and so if we, you know, from what I've heard, remove the field days and the workshops were running. It's not that there's somebody naturally going to pick those up, but yeah, you know that I question sometimes, I think overlap and competition and not competition from a, a negative wanting to win point of view, but there's just only so many hours in a day. Mm. And also it seems like all the workshops get concentrated in February and November because the weather's not bad, but farming theoretically isn't happening. Um, And so you can also, even though you might want to be at three different workshops, you Mm. have to pick one and sometimes can't make it to any because of, what happens right on the farm. So I guess, yeah, I do wonder about the evolution of the face-to-face piece, but yet still really know that of values. The podcast, I guess I wonder where, how do we become an amplifier still and, and how this has actually become an amplification tool for a lot of those groups in that, again, we don't necessarily, do we need to see every group having their own podcast or mm-hmm. have we created the podcast for all these groups to connect to each other and for people then to find out about new groups, right? Because mm-hmm. if you're only listening to your, and don't know that there's other people out there doing certain work, you don't know there's other people out there doing related work, right? So I guess part of me really believes in the podcast needing to sustain and how do we amplify, use it as an amplifier of all the work that's being done out there. Uh, yeah, it, I, the podcasting thing is just interesting in the sense that, uh, and I, honestly, I didn't really pay attention to podcasts before we started doing ours, and um, especially agriculture ones, but uh, they're completely blowing up now. I sort of got everybody mm-hmm. as a podcast. I'd like for us to take credit for that, but I don't know if we actually earned it, but it's amazing how many different groups have now gone into that space yeah. as well. Um, oh, and another thing that may interest you. So at our team meeting in Camrose recently, we decided to do less workshops and field days huh. and create more, I'm calling it flexible content. So basically more online content, stuff that hmm. producers should be able to access at their own convenience. So hmm. like doing things, recording more of our webinars, when we do do workshops, making sure it's available in different formats and just like little basic things that millennials are really good at, like taking 30 second videos talking about the stuff we're doing. Yeah. Okay, so with this question here, if you answer yes, I might start crying because I can't really picture doing this without you. Uh, has Rural Roots to Climate Solutions lost you forever? Not unless you guys are going to get rid of me on your own, but no, this. But I guess that's where it leads. This project came from personal passion mm-hmm. and connection. And I just kind of made it part of my job for a while. <laughs> um, but a lot of the time I was putting into it before wasn't because of Stetler Learning Center and the, my role there. Mm-hmm. It was just because I believe in it. And so, yeah, as long as you guys want me around, you got me. 
Yeah, watch you around If there was any uh, doubt about that, no, like yeah. I, said, I just couldn't picture doing it without you. I'm definitely gonna miss our weekly check-ins. Get my phone number. Uh, yeah, it's true. <laughs> you might regret that. Um, and yeah, I guess, yeah, maybe talk a little bit about that new role you're mm -hmm. moving into. Because it's so like, you know, a lot of what Rural Roots is trying to shift into is not just agriculture. This is really about rural empowerment. Yeah. And I'd argue your new, new role has a lot to do with that too. So yeah, I've recently moved from being manager at Stettler Learning Center to a role with, as a community investment and evaluation coordinator with the Alberta Real Estate Foundation. And it's exactly that. It was never a move or away from, but a move towards when that offer came up um, because of the Alberta Real Estate Foundation wanting to have someone out in rural Alberta and bringing that lens as well as creating those connections for them as a foundation so that they can support more projects and initiatives in rural Alberta that completely aligns to I guess how I even ended up back here in 2010 mm. was it was felt like time to move back to Canada and I wanted to be committed to rural communities I think even Vance was nervous that I wasn't going to stick around too long in rural Alberta based on the previous experiences I had and my interests. Would there be something for me to do out here? Um, and I've been fortunate with all the different opportunities I found from literally the first week of being back in rural Alberta. Um, because of the amazing groups, right? And so I see taking on the role related to community investment with the foundation, exactly that, just a further expansion of how can I continue to support the survival and hopefully the resilience of rural Alberta from a holistic sense. So whether that's social initiatives, economic initiatives, land and stewardship, as well as mobility, affordable housing, all those different angles come together for us to have vibrant communities. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, the, like I said, I'm a bit of an instigator. I like to connect people together. So this role starts to feel really great because, as our executive director often puts it, our job at the foundation is to connect people, ideas, and money mm. together and see what they do with it. What are your hopes and dreams for agriculture in Alberta or for rural roots or mm. for rural Alberta? I guess take whatever approach you'd like. What time frame are you giving me? <laughs> From now to the end of time. Oh, I'll be, I'm going to be really candid because I don't know how much trouble I can get myself into really. If I run for pre premier or prime minister, you'll okay. have to bury this. You'll have to bury it, but that's okay. Yeah. Um, part of my hope for agriculture in, well, Alberta, everywhere, is to let go of the rhetoric that we need to feed the world, okay. which is let go of the an export-based model. And I know that can send some huge ripple effects through our economy and so be it but I, I guess this is my global social, social justice hat is that we don't need to be focused on feeding the world because there's farmers all over the world and so my hope for agriculture and for the systems that 
support and feed agriculture and that agriculture feeds is to realize that there's local farmers or can be local farmers everywhere that are feeding their communities. And so we don't, it's not my responsibility to feed somebody even on the other end of this country, Mm. let alone on the other side of the world. It's my responsibility to feed my community and to not take away the opportunity for other farmers to feed their community. And I guess that's, but that's my big hope. And actually I believe that that kind of a shift in paradigm could actually unleash so many economic benefits um, because then we get into value add and storage solutions that are localized as well again and not centralized and globalized and incredibly inefficient from energy and food waste points of view, um, which opens up jobs and opens up opportunities um, and actually the whole foodpreneur space, I think, would be expanded um, if, if that was truly the paradigm we could take. Um, and I think we'd also look at our land differently too in terms of it's the land that needs to sustain our communities for generations and generations and we can't outsource our problems and our um, onto other farmers and around the world and onto other communities around the world. So that would be my hope is that we could embrace that paradigm um, and see its ripple effects throughout yeah our social economic and political systems hmm. I was wondering because this is not the first time I've heard a producer say that that we have to stop telling producers they have to feed the entire world and I always wonder if that puts like a there's enough stress in producers' lives, as, as you full well know, um, if that just puts a lot of unfair pressure on producers or if it's just something in the back of their mind that it doesn't bother them too much. I've never really had a straight-up conversation with anybody mm. about it, but I don't know. Maybe it's just adding another layer on stress on the top of this pile of stress that a lot of producers are already living in. I don't know, because I guess I don't have that stressor. Right. I don't live in that world. Yeah. Um, like it's also a money-making opportunity too. So, so it, yeah. it can be a way of easily distancing ourselves from the kinds of choices we're making on our land and the implications of those in that I'd, I'd love to, you know, feed my family and my community, but I'm too busy feeding the world. Mm. X commodity, Y commodity, Z commodity, most of which those commodities, our bodies aren't designed to eat. And especially in the quantities of which we think we need to have them to feed the world. Right. And it's a radical shift because we're so ingrained economically Mm. in a type of agriculture that needs that kind of a system. Um, and so, yeah, but that's what I mean is let's, what would that system look like? Mm. And, and actually I see it allowing a lot more people back into rural communities, um, which then means we might have more people in schools and a greater justification to have health services rurally and mm. right. Yeah. 
Uh, definitely heard Don Rizika talk about too, like when you lose the school in a community, like that's it. Yeah. Uh, you're pretty much done right there. Yeah. And yet you can't justify having a school if there's nobody to teach. Very true. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's a, I guess it's that there's a paradigm shift, but just shifting that paradigm isn't going to fix all those problems. But I guess it's that I'm curious about the, what that world looks like. Mm. Especially out here. Cause I think like, I don't know my prairie's history well enough to actually make a statement like this, but I'm going to give it a shot. I just think you know, one of the main reasons we put people out here. And when I'm saying we, I mean like uh, those of us. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I was pretty much so they would produce food and then export it. Whereas yeah. I guess you still had a bit of that out East, but I almost feel like they have more of a local food economy there. Whereas you're like, no, 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 you guys go in this place. That's really hard to farm by the way. Cause it's got a climate very similar to Mongolia and make sure you export all that stuff yeah. outside of. So it's not like, it's easy to say like, you know, the commodification of food and export market, you know, just post second world war phenomena. It's, it's a thing that's been out here since the dawn of uh, white settler agriculture. Yeah. And to like break that open or adjust it, it's gonna mm-hmm. take a lot of work. You know? yeah. yeah. I mean, as, as quite a nationalist and being as proud to be Canadian as I am Albertan and probably I'm still identifying more as a Canadian than an Albertan. I've really started to understand in the last few years, as I came back and even looked at the Albertan history, um, our, the, the whole Western um, alienation piece mm. from that point of view up, right? That our history is about feeding the world and that's why it's a big mindset to change and yes there was self-sufficiency right and I don't Mm. uh, devalue or discredit the self-sufficiency and the skills and the fact that the pioneers were feeding themselves Mm -hmm. that came out here in the settlers Um, but the whole yeah reason they even got their land or the way they were told they had to manage their land mm. or have it taken away from them mm. or the land not their land was designed to export right and so I think that's a big paradigm to change something that I, I often I guess ponder is what 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 we would look like as a nation mm-hmm. if the Métis people had not been suppressed the way they were. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And I'm going to check myself and all the biases in there to go, well, but wait a second. And I, that's still coming from a, a privileged point mm. um, of even what that would look like from an indigenous prior to there being Métis. But I guess there's that, that there's a lot of, I wonder, mm. had there been a... Um, a greater appreciation and a blending and a partnership what our land ethic and our whole sense of community in rural Alberta would be Mm. did you guys ever watch that cartoon Pinky and the Brain back in the 90s I, I like to joke with Brenda that me and her are like Pinky and the Brain 
and that we have this evil and daily plan to try and take over the world by supporting agriculture producers in implementing climate solutions that are good for the land, the farm, and their community. It's just absolutely diabolical. I don't think we ever established which one of us was Pinky and which one of us was the brain. Now, I did give it some thought before I started recording this episode, and you know what? I think I'm Pinky. No, I'm serious. I think I am. Brenda is always able to look at what we're doing and understand what we're doing with Rural Roots to Climate Solutions from a high-level perspective, from a systems-level perspective. Whereas myself, on the other hand, I feel like most of my thoughts are occupied with trying to figure out the how of what we do. As in, how do we create a world where agricultural producers receive support for providing us with climate change mitigation and climate change adaptation services? Because we have these two complementary approaches, maybe that's why we made such a great team. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is an Alberta-based project empowering agriculture producers and the communities they live in with climate solutions. Rural Roots is a project of the Stetler Learning Centre in East Central Alberta. We run workshops, farm field days, webinars, and we assist rural communities in developing their own renewable energy projects. And we also produce this podcast. For more information about us and what we do, go to the website, so www.rr2cs.ca. The Rural Roots to Climate Solutions team is Angie O'Connor, Marie Galanka, Evelyn Tanaka, and myself, Derek Leahy. The advisory committee is Brenda Barrett, Mark Fox, Dana Penrice, and Kimberly Cornish. The podcast receives its funding from the Government of Alberta and Energy Efficiency Alberta, This episode was edited by Kieran Mountain of Mountain Media and recorded at the Stetler Learning Centre in Stetler, Alberta on Treaty 6 land, part of Métis Region 3. Happy farming wherever you are in Alberta. And remember, what's good for the climate is good for the farm.